Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 20 of the Delgado Podcast, a show featuring academics, authors, artists, and people who challenge the way we think and how to take action. You know, as Christians, we go through seasons of doubt. We can go through seasons of very strong faith. And sometimes during the most tragic and painful moments, we might begin to lose our faith in God entirely. And especially when it comes to things like physical pain, physical trauma, those things can devastate us. And it's not just the pain, it's that it's that feeling of being dismissed by God, that feeling of being forgotten, or that God doesn't care or even want to protect us. And during those most darkest moments, as I've gone through them, all the Bible verses we've memorized, right? All those promises from scripture, the creeds we believed in, the creeds we've recited, the catechisms, like all those things, like it doesn't provide the peace or comfort that it once did when we were feeling good. And sometimes those verses can even traumatize us further, cause us more pain, more grief, and even disbelief in God. And you know, for me, as I think through some of my really hard times, it's still difficult for me to recite the Lord's Prayer. Because even the phrase, thy will be done, which I've said thousands of times, right, in the Lord's Prayer, those words, thy will be done, it unsettles me. Because when you're going through painful moments, like God's will being done doesn't seem so great anymore. And it's easy to say those words when life is easy, uh, but it becomes tragic and painful when we're going through those most difficult seasons. So whenever the church would recite the Lord's Prayer, I would just be moved to silence as I try to process my own feelings and my own theology along with the trauma. So it's no wonder that many of us may lose our faith or need to adjust or evolve our theology during those dark seasons to help us kind of make sense, if that's possible, of the pain or the trauma that's happening to us or others. And that's why it was such an honor to learn from Loanne Haska about her faith journey in managing pain, chronic illness, and finding wholeness, which is a subject of her new book entitled Hurting Yet Whole, Reconciling Body and Spirit in Chronic Pain and Illness, which is published by InterVarsity Press. In this episode, Loanne shares her spiritual journey, her struggles with chronic pain and feeling misunderstood, the spiritual pain of feeling dismissed by God, how she has managed her mental health, how disability theologians address wholeness, ways our understanding of God can change during these darkest moments, and ways that all of us can better listen and better care for those who are hurting around us. Here's our conversation. Luann, I'm really curious about how you came to faith, like what that journey was like for you. Yeah, I grew up in a non-religious family. My parents grew up in Mao era China, so they were pretty strongly discouraged not to believe that there was anything outside of material existence. And so growing up, 
I moved to the United States when I was three and lived in Southern California and Southeast Texas. But um, I, I mainly got the idea that our bodies and what what we see in front of us is all there is to life. And so it's really important then to make your, make your body, you know, in the best shape possible and keep your health. But then when we moved to Southeast Texas, um, my parents started a Chinese restaurant there. And um, I was one of maybe two other Asian kids in school. And um, I got invited to church by one of my friends. So that's when um, I started being exposed to the Christian message. And it was just all around me. Obviously, we were in the Bible Belt and um, everybody believed in God. And so for me, when they asked me, do you want to accept Jesus into your life? It was sort of like, oh, do you want to belong? So I uh, I was like, sure, I <laughs> I'll do that. Um, and so it's it's really interesting to think about the ways that God just takes you into his family and in ways and the, the methods might not be the most or the motivation might not be the most like I'm doing this because I believe in the, mm-hmm. the or I don't even know what I believe. But once uh, once I was in the church and started, um, I got like this new disciple packet of fill in the blanks of like what does what is sin and what did Jesus come to do and so I went through all that and looked up all the bible verses and that was kind of the start of my journey and amazingly I stuck with it and um, ended up going to Wheaton College in uh, Wheaton Illinois for uh, for my undergrad so um, that's that's the beginning of the journey so I'll stop there how did your how did your family react do you like getting involved in a Christian church and um, kind of pursuing that? And then even going further to even go to a Christian college, that's a big deal, huge investment. They, did, they didn't like it. Um, well, when I started going to church, I also started wanting to give money to the church. And um, that was really disturbing to my mom. Um, I remember like folding laundry and having conversations with her about how she thought I shouldn't be like kind of going into this, like what she felt like was a cult where they were taking my money. And Mm -hmm. I was basing all of my um, kind of hopes and dreams on this message and this specific system of beliefs. So uh, she strongly discouraged me from going to church. She kind of felt like I was like in over my head. Like I was just doing this thing because I, wanted to be part of something bigger than me um, right. but I didn't have any grounding in reality so she was worried that I would get lost in that and and there were definitely like moments where I would say things because I was in like my Jesus freak period of like just mm-hmm. being really passionate and I would say like you know I don't need to like get a job God's going to take care of me <laughs> so I went to the other extreme because my mom was so practical and I wanted to like push against that um, yeah and then when when I went to Wheaton College, that was not what they had in mind either. They wanted me to go to a, a Ivy League school, and that's what they was were hoping. And they I got a full scholarship to Wheaton, but they said, you know, we'll pay for you to go to Columbia or Stanford <laughs> instead of Wheaton. <laughs> but but I still went to Wheaton, so they're wow. okay with it now. I mean, I my I'm not like you know destitute or anything. So 
What um what drove your decision to go to Wheaton? You had so many options. Yeah, I I think the the idea of having a Christian community, I uh I've always felt like an outsider, you know, um being from an immigrant family. And so that vision of being in close Christian community was what drove me to go there. And and I did end up finding that, although the first semester was really challenging because I was not even familiar with the term evangelical before I went to Wheaton College. So it was a big culture shock to go from my Chinese immigrant family and in Southeast Texas, where um, there's is a very narrow segment of you know the evangelical faith and the church. So come, going to Wheaton, uh, it was it was challenging on a number of levels. Was it like just the exposure to different types of Christian denominations that was like, oh, wow, this is a lot bigger than I thought? Yeah, that was part of the challenge. And part of it was also the um, not being culturally competent in the evangelical world. So I felt like I didn't catch the jokes that people were telling and that I, I didn't come from a, a family of faith. So there was so much that people were talking about that I felt that was foreign to me. Hmm. Can you share like an example of like what you mean by kind of the evangelical language that's being used and you're like feeling like out of the loop? I can't think of anything that comes to mind there were just so many jokes about, um, you know, they had this board up um, at the college post office where they would post um, all these like really like kind of erudite jokes about theology um, and, or they would talk about like modesty and there's always these like ongoing wars about are, are girls being modest enough or are we like, completely misunderstanding what modesty is and I just had no background to even begin to like engage in those conversations mm. very well um so I feel like I was just learning all of this um new language and background about um what people were like what was important to people and what people the questions that my peers were asking so um I, I was very quiet for the first uh few semesters at Wheaton. And what did you, what were you studying at Wheaton? I was, a, I started out being a history major, but I, before I even took a history class, I got roped into taking an anthropology class from um, my professor named Brian Howell, who's still a good friend of mine. And that's what um, got me interested in anthropology. I think the idea of an anthropologist as this participant observer as both being outside and yet sort of inside and looking into the inside from the outside and stepping back and, and being able to say things about what they see um, really fascinated me because it resonated so much with my own experience of growing up in the United States. At what, what period did you like start to think about like becoming a writer and starting to like you're studying anthropology, you're studying um, culture, being the outsider, being an insider. What, at what point did you start to like think about writing um, for yourself and maybe even writing books? 
Yeah, I I had been um, in the newspaper staff in high school, so journalism was always uh, a possibility for me. And then once I started going down the anthropology path, I figured I would go get a PhD and go on to um, teach and write academic books. And that's still a possibility. But when I finished my, I got a master's at the University of Chicago. So when I finished that, I realized that I wanted to write for a larger audience. So that's when I started um, pitching articles to different publications. And that started me down the path of um, being a freelance writer and then writing this book that we're going to be talking about. You talk about um, early on in your book about working at a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. And when you finished at Wheaton and were, um, I'm not sure at what point you went to work at a nonprofit. Was it after your undergraduate work or after your graduate work? Yeah, after, right after I graduated from Wheaton. What drove you down the nonprofit route? Uh huh. I think it was sort of a, a holding place for me as I was trying to figure out uh, what do I want to study in graduate school? So that was, it was mainly that, just I found that job and it, it seemed to fit with my skill set at the moment. Yeah. But, but I've also always been, I think a lot of we in college students and maybe just a lot of like millennial Christians in general are really passionate about social justice and kind of like helping and making the world mm -hmm. better. So that was part of it as well. So your book um, gets into the pain that you started to feel in your, in your ankle. And this begins like basically the story of your book and you talking about pain and how, how it impacted you and how it impacts you today. Um, I wonder if we can talk, start off with that, that point where you're realizing that this is not just like a sprained ankle. This is more than that. And that frustration you're feeling with, you're trying to communicate the best you can with the doctors and the specialists about this pain. And you're being kind of written off of, well, just take some Tylenol. Um, this is kind of maybe in your mind, like just walk and you'll get through this. There's nothing, we're not seeing anything in the x-rays. We're not seeing anything in MRIs. Like this is, um, we're not quite sure what to do with, with this. Can you talk a little bit about that, that place of just mm -hmm. uh, being misunderstood mm -hmm. by the medical community and maybe even also by your close friends or church community? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for, for me, when I started realizing maybe this isn't going to be something, this pain isn't going to be something that's going to go away in a couple of weeks or even a, a couple of months. I really felt like because I had relied so much on my body being able to do things for me that this was really something was wrong and I really wanted to be fixed and get better. And so when I approached doctors, I think I had this uh, illusion that going to the doctor was going to fix me and I think that that's a common like when we go to the doctor we kind of put doctors on pedestals and expect that they'll have all the answers and and that's not the case for so many people 
living with chronic pain or illness, they realize that doctors are really making educated guesses at at what's going on like they can't see inside your body even though we have MRIs and x-rays so we kind of think that if if we have the right knowledge then we'll be able to um, master the body and that that realization that um, maybe doctors really don't know what they're what's going on was really hard um, and also getting the message from them, like like you said, I, I just got a lot of, uh, just take some Tylenol and give it some time or it'll be okay. So that sort of made me feel like I, maybe I was just over overreacting and, and this is like all in my head and, and even from, um, and I think I was a little bit in some ways overreacting. I mean, not to minimize the emotional turmoil I was going through, but I was so young and I, I had such a a very small slice of the like experience of what it means to live in a human body, which was had all been so good up until that point and so easy. So that, um, that coming up against um, pain and limits and the realization that I sometimes your body doesn't cooperate and sometimes like you you get really stuck and you can't do all the things that you want to do um i had a really hard time with that and like you know 10 years down the road from that i think i would have a different reaction having sort of experienced like a broader scope of what is a normal human experience so that feeling of like feeling like i was abnormal was was part of that isolation and and part of the the turmoil yeah and you, you mentioned something about that feeling of the the, the self-questioning and wondering is this all in my head and that's that's like really hard because you're experiencing this pain you know that it's real but then when you have these authority figures the doctors telling you like no actually there's nothing going on here and that's a really hard place to be in because now when you start questioning yourself you can feel like am i going crazy like what why like I, I know i'm feeling pain but they're telling me that it's not real or it's all in my head right i mean i think i don't think they ever like specifically said it's all in your head but you know there was nothing they could i mean there were some diagnoses that i got but um the treatments they didn't really address my my pain <clears throat> so whenever um yeah, whenever they they kind of said, well, we don't really see anything that we can do anything about. Yeah. Um, that made me feel like, okay, well, uh, I guess I just don't have help. So that feeling of kind of not having people to walk alongside me was really uh, challenging. Or I think it would have been different if I had started out at a doctor where they were willing to say, okay, well, we tried this and it didn't work. And so let's try this and let's keep looking into this. But I got a lot of just like, okay, that's all we can do. Um, dismissal. So then I would go to the next doctor mm -hmm. and tell them my story all over again. But eventually I did find um, some doctors that were more of a partnership um, relationship that I felt like um, weren't just going to say, like drop me and say, well, that's it. And uh, that's it. <laughs> so I, I was able to keep going back to, some doctors and I think that's like the the thing about uh 
like these chronic conditions is that you need people that are like problem solving with you, like, like kind of in it for the long call with you. And I don't think we have that in a lot of the way that American medicine works. It's about like quick fixes and there's like people aren't talking to each other within the fields, the different fields. So there's like not like, unless you have like a really good um, like primary care doctor who's like willing to kind of put together all the pieces for you, you're kind of like doing it on your own, trying to put together all the pieces of what all the specialists are saying. I feel like the like what you're saying about this, the medical field, it's so hard because some doctors are so busy just trying to solve cases, move on to the next patient. They have so many patients to meet, be meeting with and you're one of them. And that they can't they can't find like the problem on the X-ray or the MRI. There's not much they can do. They can refer mm-hmm. you to another specialist. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it does take a special type of doctor to like sit with you, listen, and spend more than the ten minutes that they're supposed to be in that room with you to actually like kind of like I'm going to be with you during this process. Check in with me in a month. Like let's let's talk more. Let's do some more tests. It takes a yeah. special doctor to do that. Yeah, that. It means so much for patients. Like when I was speaking with different um, people who lived with chronic illness for my book and interviewing them, that moment when they found that doctor, this the one who would actually hear their story and look them in the eye and just receive that story without needing to, even if they didn't have a fix or um, even if they weren't the ones who gave them the the real diagnosis, that that feeling of being accompanied is so important. And I understand that. It's, it takes so much emotional energy to do that. Why doctors are unable to give that um, a lot of the time, and and it's hard to be that involved in your patients' lives. <laughs> like if you did that for every patient, I think um, I don't know. I, I don't know what has to change within medicine to make that relationship different. And, and tell me, like, how you were process, processing this mentally, because this is all happening to you physically. At the same time, like you're having limitations now on how much you can walk and you talk about like you love the outdoors, you like to be able to go out and hike and and now you're like limited to where you can walk and what you can actually do. And you're realizing that this is now going to change like your life potentially. So can you share a little bit more like how you were kind of coping with this mentally? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I didn't do uh, a great job with that at the beginning. I mean, maybe I shouldn't say that because I think the responses that I had were normal, actually, and, and maybe they were part of what I needed to go through in order to get to that um, more like integrative and accepting stage. Um, so I went through, you know, depression and anxiety and anger, um, knowing that I would be. Um, it was it was a feeling of grief, right? And there's like the stages of grief that people go through and denial, bargaining. <laughs> there was a lot of that with God, like, uh, or just not bargaining, but at least saying like, like, what do I do? Like, just show me the next step. I just want to know what I need to do next and, and um, that I'm on the right path. And I didn't get that <laughs> from God. Um, what I got was you're 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 gonna be okay in in a deeper sense of being okay than like not not your body's gonna be okay like okay and you're never gonna experience pain again, but just that 
God's going to be present with me. And there are people that he's put around me that are going to be there for me. And I'm going to be okay because I'm supported and I'm like, I'll be caught by people. Even if I feel like I'm free falling, there'll be people there. I think that's like, like those periods where you're suffering physically, you're maybe not getting the support from the medical community, maybe not even getting support from certain friends at church um, or friends in your life who maybe are like even questioning, like, oh, I wonder how much he's really in pain. Like that can be very, very hurtful. And then on top of that, you have that faith dynamic of like doubting God, angry at God, like, why are you doing this to me? What did I do? Like start to just question. And, and sometimes you start to like, oh, I, I, I did all these things. Like I was like, I served in a nonprofit. I went to a Christian college. You start to like, not that you, not that you're thinking that that adds any sort of more favor, but you're still like, look, I've, I've lived a good life. And like, why is this happening to me? What did I do to deserve this? Mm-hmm. Um, and that just complicates the pain, makes it even worse. That anxiety yeah. is like, right. It's, it becomes more and more, I think right. for the, for the person who's like wanting to trust in God. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I write in the book that the, the mental and emotional pain was really worse than the physical pain because um, that, that sense, I guess, of feeling like things weren't right and that uh, there's something I had to do to make it right. Um, and then not knowing what that thing was, was what is that gap between like reality and expectations that really um, kind of took me down that rabbit hole of like the despair and the darkness. Um, and I, that's, I think, uh, like, you know, the dark night of the soul, that's just a normal um, part of the spiritual journey, um, like an expected part of the spiritual journey. But um, I didn't, I guess I didn't expect that, <laughs> that that it would just come in the way it did. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think part of that, that dark night is um, some of the hard parts is, are when you're losing close relationships or you're not feeling as connected anymore because you're no longer able to go on those outings or be part of certain community groups because you're just not feeling well enough or, and you start to lose those connections. And that can be a very, very painful period as well. Like you were so close to somebody, but now like you're not able to do those things or see them as often because of the the pain that you're in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even like at church, the fact that I couldn't stand for communion and I didn't really have, I didn't want to tell everybody what I, that I was like going through this pain and I didn't know if it would go away. So it, it felt like um, I didn't want to like, you know, be on the, like be the one that was always on the prayer list. Like these are the suffering people in our church and let's like keep praying for them. Oh, they're still not better. Let's keep praying for them. And so like for me, like so much of my identity had been like, I'm a, I'm like the kind of the, the part of the church that's well and like giving and like stable and um, certain about things. So then to be on the, kind of the like, Oh, these are like the people that um, their faith is kind of like shaky or whatever they need. They mm-hmm. need some help. <laughs> it, it was a really disorienting experience for me. I, I see you like very much a giver and especially like going to a Christian college and then like 
going on to do nonprofit work, which is very, very difficult work. You're basically giving of yourself, your time, your energy, your passion about the mission of the nonprofit. And, and now when you're in a place of being hurt, now you're having to like be a receiver. And that can be very, very hard for those who are givers to like be at a place of like, oh, now I need someone to help me. I need to be on the prayer list now. I don't like being on that list. I want to be on the opposite side. I get joy out of giving. I don't, I don't get joy out of like receiving or getting help. Yeah. And we can place so much value within the church on the giving um, and not the receiving. And then for people that are constantly receiving, it becomes like this, like, I think I've met my quota of all the things that I can receive. Um, I guess like how many times can you ask to get a meal delivered to you Mm -hmm. or just have someone come and clean your house when you can't do it yourself? So that becomes just this like sense of like, I don't want to like burden this relationship anymore by asking one more time or I have to cancel on you. I'm so flaky. (laughs) And so it really, um, it challenges what we, even in the church, as much as we talk about everybody is valuable because they're a child of God. Yet when we think about, um, you know, ministry and who stands in front it's it's givers, right? And it's people that are able to um, kind of like step up. And then when you can't and you have limits, you can feel like um, you maybe don't have a role in the church other than being ministered to. And that's one of the things that I started to question, like, okay, if we can't do things, then what is our mm. location in the world? Um, is it is it just about the things that we can do? Or um, is there something to just being, you know, human and presence and just bringing your presence that's enough to, as a gift to people? And um, I read a lot of um, disability theology while I was writing this book and thinking about, you know, what is vocation when, and, and if our bodies are part of who we are and our bodies are so, can be, um, so limited in many ways that kind of like keep us from doing what we think we want to do in life. Um, do like what is vocation? And one of the theologians I really appreciate is uh, Joyce Mercer. Um, she teaches at Yale and um, has talked about the vocation of the elderly um, beyond what they uh, give, which you know, you get to the point where you can't produce. And so what what value are you to the church or to society? She talks about, they, do they still have a vocation when you're past the point of being productive? And um, she talks about how vocation is not just about the things that you do for others, but the things that you call out in others. So mm. the elderly are able to call out, you know, that, that human um, presence in other people and slowing down and being attentive to vulnerability and that caring and paying attention to like stories and not like tasks and like um, presence. So that was all really helpful for me to like reorient my own identity. I mean, I still am like a really driven person, but I 
I come back to that again and again when I when I come up against my own limits and realize, okay, I can't do that thing that I was planning to do today. Okay, I'm still a valuable person, even though I I can't do these um, particular things. I love that you're like super curious and that you even discovered this um what what you call disability theology. I never even heard that term before. I wouldn't even know that even existed. I'm kind of curious like how you like discovered that and maybe can you share a little bit more about like what dis- disability theology teaches us? Um yeah. There's a whole field of disability theology and um I'll have to get back to you on like the kind of the key texts that uh, friends that work in the field have referred me to, but it's just looking at um, like, okay, if people are um, born with disabilities, does that mean that they're flawed, um, that God kind of made a mistake when <laughs> um, he made these people? And that, um, is so much based on what we in society think of as normal. Um, and that comes from what we value as a society, which is in our American capitalist society is being productive and being you know, able-bodied and being um, independent and you know, like upwardly mobile and getting things done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so that is like the norm that we set. And then there's um, in the disability theology field, you know, there's people with uh, paraplegia or um, intellectual disabilities and they don't fit that norm. So they're saying, well, we're still made in the image of God. So what do our bodies, what do our lived experiences have to say about who God is? And can we sort of, um, take our lived experiences and you know like toggle back and forth between like you know what the what what we've learned about who God is and these characteristics we think of as God having and often that's some of that is out that comes out of our own um like in capitalist American society out of what what we like imagine ourselves to be which is like capable and um, kind of like able to overcome our limitations and to transcend our bodies. Um, and so like one disability theologian that I really appreciated, the paraplegic, her name is Judith Snow. And she said, like, what if we think about God as a paraplegic? And, you know, I, I read about this in the book, like he, he, calls us his body you know like christ is the head and we are the members of his body so in a way like christ can't do anything in the world without us because we are like christ's Mm. hands and feet to the world Mm -hmm. Um, and so that makes god vulnerable and dependent on us almost and and we don't think of god as dependent and vulnerable we think of god as you know this unmoved mover the the one Mm -hmm. who kind of stands behind everything and and kind of is untouched by the suffering or whatever human um you know foibles and things that are happening in the world so yeah what does the experience of the people living on the margins have to offer to our vision of god and um that's what i started to move towards more and more as i <laughs> realized uh, my my lived experience was putting me in the margins 
helped me to find um you know a sense of like okay i'm not alone and and this yeah. is this is a part of the human experience yeah that's beautiful and i'm glad you touched on this like that feeling of like sometimes our value is attached to our productivity or the things that we can do and i think about like just just my own self like growing up like my parents very much you know wanted me to be just they were very very hard workers that's they modeled for me and kind of like your value in society is like how hard you work and my mom and dad both had two jobs Mm -hmm. they were always working and when i got into high school i had two jobs i really wanted to like show my parents like i'm a hard worker too i'd go to school i go to work and the hard work for me was always like something that was super important to me and I, I felt like that's my value to society is how I like how I work. And I think what gets really, really hard is when you start to have um, issues, uh, in my case, mental health issues, like I have an anxiety disorder. And so um, panic attacks, things like that, where I can't work today because I'm having anxiety. And and sometimes that can be perceived as like, that's all in basically that's all in your head mm-hmm. you just need to deal with it like just get up go to work like yeah. just work work through it sometimes you can't it. work through, yeah. yeah sometimes you can't work through it sometimes that's why i go to therapy <laughs> mm-hmm. sometimes you need to take that day off you need to um spend time with self-care take care of yourself mm-hmm. um and that and i think that's really really hard with with certain things where people who deal with chronic pain where there isn't like a a certain um x-ray that shows something but that pain is there or a mental health issue or those like invisible issues that um, are harder to see and sometimes people don't believe they're even real mm-hmm. yeah i'm before i had depression i remember thinking like why are these why are these people like having such a hard time like just just get up and do it yeah. <laughs> um but it wasn't until I experienced it myself and I realized you can't just get up and do it. There's some days when you just can't get out of bed and that's okay sometimes. Mm-hmm. And actually like the, the pushing through actually can make it worse because um, maybe you get over it that day, but then you're not yeah. like kind of unpacking all the things that are, that are within that have led to that, that moment. And, um, you know, as I growing up, like you talked about your growing up experiences, my parents also, like, they were such hard workers. And I don't think they had a lot of room to deal with whatever traumas and, um, you know, emotional weight that they were carrying from, from their own histories. And there's so much that I learned from just seeing them that was uh, we just kind of whenever we like have an argument as a family or something the next day we just move on and we just yeah, keep yeah. going and so it just kind of gets like shoved under the table and shoved under the table and at some point like all of that becomes too much to carry and so that can be where it all falls apart but then we've learned so much to just keep going that um yeah, it, it can be really challenging to learn new ways to approach those moments where um, we just can't do the next thing. And instead of pushing through, there's there's space to give yourself permission not to do the next thing. 
and and that can actually be more helpful because you'll be able to do the next thing eventually. I, I keep reminding myself of that. Like, I can't do it today, but that doesn't mean I'll never be able mm. to do it again. You talk about like, um, it's not good to keep pushing it aside because at some point you got to deal with it. Otherwise, there's going to be like an explosion that happens at some point. You keep pushing it away, pushing it away. I'll deal with it later. We'll get through this. Mm -hmm. We'll just work through it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes um, that thing's not going away. It's got to be dealt with at some point. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, there'll be some sort of crisis that's going to happen. And I think yeah. about that happens also in the faith area, too, um, mm -hmm. as a Christian. Um, I know that my thing has been like, oh, I'll just, I'll just have faith and just just believe I'll get through this pain or I'll get through this thing. And and sometimes like that works for so long. Um, and and then at some point you can go into this tailspin of like, do I even believe in God anymore? Like this, mm -hmm. this, you know, and I remember, and some of my, some of the trauma I've been through at one point, I remember, and, and it's still hard for me to say, you know, we say the Lord's prayer at church. It's like every week you sing, you know, you say the Lord's prayer. And there was a period and I still actually have trouble with the Lord's prayer because you know, one of the key pass, one of the key things you say is "Thy will be done. And when you're in trauma or you're going through pain or anything that is devastating to you, that God has allowed to happen. Like I have no desire, like God's will obviously is not something I'm not, I'm not a fan of right now. Mm -hmm. And you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I've, I've gone through seasons where we would, everyone's saying the Lord's prayer out loud, you know, at church. Mm. And I just stay silent in that phrase because mm -hmm. I can't, I can't say it. Yes. And I, yes. yeah. 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 It can be like those phrases can be, have been used so much to cover over the pain or dismiss it instead of really facing it head on. Um, I think there's, oh, there's truth to them. Like the phrase is like, God is in control and like, God has a perfect timing. Um, I think there's there's like nuggets of truth behind that, but so much depends on how we say them and the posture of our heart as we're saying them. Is it about um, me trying to get over this thing or am I really inviting God into that space of desolation and desperation and devastation? Um, we get we get really scared of those spaces because I was just talking about this in um, a book discussion group. I asked um, like what like what would happen if we actually sat with our vulnerability um, and we actually paid attention to it um, and we let all the d uncomfortable emotions come up. And one woman talked about um, how she has um, had children. She's like older now, but um, when her child rearing years, her children had a lot of learning disabilities and she was shutting them back and forth to all these appointments and just trying to get through and make it to the next day. And like everything was so hard. Um, and she worried that if she stopped to actually feel all the feelings that came with uh, having children with learning disabilities and all of the, the heartache that that brought, that she would just start crying and melt mm. into a puddle and never be able to get back up and 
go on. Um, so we, yeah, um, I, I wrote about in my book that it just feels like you're like it kind of in an abyss and you don't want to, <laughs> you don't want to free fall into that. And so you just kind of uh, stay away from it. Yeah. And I, I think also what's hard in those moments, especially when you have someone who you love, like sharing with you how they're feeling, like they're processing it out loud and telling, you know, and I, and I do this with my wife, I'll share with her, like how I'm feeling. And sometimes um, in, in trying to be helpful, the partner or, or myself, I get into this, like, you know, the, the fix it mode of like, well, yeah. let me, let me solve this. Like, let me think through some ways that we can deal with this issue. Cause you're trying to be helpful and you're thinking yeah. that's the helpful response. Yeah. <laughs> and many times, like, that's not what I'm looking for. I want to vent. I can probably think of some answers to deal with yeah. it, but I don't want answers. I want to be able to be listened to, but that's yeah. really hard for me. Like, I have no problem venting, <laughs> yeah. you know, and I want someone yeah. to listen to me, but I am like really bad at listening and just like sitting there with somebody and not trying to offer advice. Like that's, I struggle with that. Yeah. Um, it's so uncomfortable because you want to, you want to help the pain. Yeah. You know, you want to relieve the pain for other people. Um, and sometimes it's helpful. I think, um, I was talking with a, um, another in a, another podcast interview who and this interviewer said, you know, you can just ask what they need from you in that moment. That was a really helpful aha moment for me. Like, oh, you, what do I, what do you need from me right now? Would it be helpful for me to like think through solutions with you, or at least like um, tools that you could like kind of use in this time, or, or do you just want me to be here and? Um, but yeah, I I think we just we all like don't know what to do with ourselves when we're sitting with another person in pain, and we're worried we're going to say the wrong things, we're going to say something offensive to them. Um, and then also it, it's a feeling of helplessness, and yeah. and and we don't like that. So, um, but I think yeah, what what means has meant the most to me is. When people say, mm, like, this is so hard, like, I'm feeling this with you, and that that sense of being, like, someone feeling with, like, empathy, um, it, it makes it a little lighter than it did, like, you know, minutes ago when I was, like, kind of, like, stuck in that place. So we, we underestimate, I think, the power of simple human presence. Before we go, I wanted to ask you about as your kids get older and as you are modeling, like how to kind of manage pain and talk about it in the family. And like, just like what we just talked about here, when someone's expressing pain, how to respond. And you're trying, you're, we want, like, we all want to model like the right behavior for our kids. And as your kids get older, I'm just wondering, like, what maybe will be some things you'll be doing to maybe help them like see like how we deal with pain and also how we can comfort each other. I have to say I am still in process. <laughs> so it's honestly, it's easier for me to deal with other people's pain than my own kids pain <laughs> or, you know, whatever emotional stuff 
they're going through, it's, it's even more uncomfortable. Um, I'm actually, and I would say therapists are great because I'm actually going to see a therapist about this. Um, I think we write the things that we want to live. Um, so for me, it's like, uh, it's like so much more challenging to live out when it's like this day in and day in and day out grind of the people that you live with daily that know you so intimately. And I, and I go back to all those tendencies of, Oh, just, just get over it. And, um, we'll be, you'll, you'll be fine. Like you're fine. You're fine. Um, but in my better moments, um, I think I just, I want them to know that it's okay to stop and it's okay to feel what you're feeling. You don't have to um, kind of push it aside to to go on. And I, um, my second son has dealt with these um, like recurring tummy aches and it was more prevalent in his younger years when he didn't have like the verbal language to express it. And that, that was mm. one of those moments where I felt so helpless to do anything about it and so impatient and angry at him almost for mm -hmm. how he was feeling and I think the anger came from me feeling so helpless about me not being able to find any way to help him so and then I had some better moments where I was able to just hold him and allow him to cry and just say I'm here and I'm present and so I it's, it seems really basic, um, but the word presence, I feel like sums up what I want to be for my kids and what my, I want my kids to learn as they go out into the world, that it's, it's okay to show up to your emotions and to your vulnerability and to all the things that make us uncomfortable, that it's okay to be there and just to feel it. And then as you're feeling it and as you invite God into those spaces, the next thing will come eventually, but you don't have to like force your way to the next thing. Um, you have permission to be in that space where you don't know and you don't have answers and you don't have to just like come up with something to say or something to do to make it better, but you can just be there. Yeah, and that's like sometimes the hardest thing. It sounds so simple, but so um can be so difficult just to sit and just be present and and modeling that for our kids is I I love I love what you just said there about just being present and and modeling that for them. Um before we go, um can you share a little bit about your book, Hurting Yet Whole? Yeah, um so this it covers a lot of the things that we just talked about. And um, it's, it's my story of kind of reconciling my own pain with how I understand God and my body and what it means to be human. I also bring in a lot of stories of other people that I interviewed who have chronic pain or illness. And I tie in some of my sociological, anthropological training, as well as different um theological explorations, like including from disability studies into the conversation. And it came out a week ago uh, from when we were recording, it came out on December 8th um, with InterVarsity Press. So it's available wherever books are sold. 
And it's a fantastic book. I, like I told you, like I really enjoyed reading your book. I read the entire book in one night. I read it in the in the day, and then I finished it up at night. Yeah. It was so good. Yeah, scrolling through and reading it. <laughs> it's so good. Um, I was I was uh, taken in by the, your storytelling, and then all the the data points you shared, the research you pulled in, um, various theologians. You mixed in uh, anthropologists, sociologists, and then these really amazing stories of different people, how they dealt with pain, and you address so many different issues. Um, anyways, you, you, you're a phenomenal writer, so thank you so much for writing it. And um, for those that want to follow you on social, what are the best channels? Mm-hmm. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. It's just my name at Luann Huska, L-I-U-A-N-H-U-S-K-A. And I also have a Facebook profile, author profile. And you can go to my website, which is www.luannhuska.com. Awesome. Thanks so much, Luann. Thanks, Mike. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation with Luann Huska about her latest book entitled Hurting Yet Whole, Reconciling Body and Spirit in Chronic Pain and Illness, which is published by InterVarsity Press. You can learn more about her writings and events she's speaking at on her website at luannhuska.com. That's spelled L-I-U-A-N-H-U-S-K-A.com. And I would love to hear from you about how Luann's story has impacted you. You can let me know by messaging me on Instagram, TikTok, or Twitter at Delgado Podcast. Next time, we get a chance to learn from Dr. Russell Jung, a leading sociologist focused on Asian American identity, religion, and race. We talk with him about the formation of Asian American theology, how the church is addressing anti-Asian racism, and how a theology of exile can help us better understand and love our Asian American communities and the God who dwells in liminal spaces too. So that's next time. And if you found this podcast helpful in any way, please let me know by rating the show on iTunes and or leaving a comment. Your vote can help this show get more visibility. Thank you so much. Take care, and we'll chat more next time.